most of us come to practice with a beautiful aspiration in our hearts. Um, sometimes it's a little confused, but, but the essence of it uh, tends to be, you know, incredibly moving. That in some way we're responding to the call of suffering, to the distress in the world, to our own inner distress. And we know to some degree that to um, really help alleviate that, we can't just do it on a superficial level. That we really have to look deeply into the roots of suffering. And, you know, we're of great fortune that, you know, we have heard something of the Buddha's teachings, have, um, you know, the path that he laid out that can take us to the end of suffering, the freeing of the heart-mind. And so, you know, it's a very beautiful aspiration in our hearts to awaken. And as beautiful as that aspiration may be, we may find in coming here, or, you know, during the course of our lives, that we forget. We forget why we're practicing, why we look deeply. We forget what's meaningful in our lives. And so tonight, I want to speak about uh, the four thoughts that help to turn the mind towards Dharma. These are four thoughts that when we work with them as a contemplation, they turn our minds in the direction of both seeing that which is true, not being caught in the illusion or the promise of happiness that the, you know, the world of sense desire um, can leave us in, that the, these contemplations help us to deeply remember why it is that we practice. When we uh, really uh, work with these contemplations, what they help to do is to bring forth a natural sense of urgency, an urgency that is healthy, that um, will help us to be steady in difficult times, and that will help to keep us on track in our lives. So we don't, at the end of our lives, find ourselves on our deathbed, regretting, having remorse about the way we used our life. When I was putting together this talk, um, which I just began yesterday, but uh, it really, I started to feel the urgency you know, just from working with the material. And, you know, in feeling the urgency, it was also revealing to me this laziness. You know, and, you know, sometimes we think of laziness, oh, you know, should I sit 
again, should I walk longer? Or, you know, we, we, we relate to it in the way of formal practice. But, you know, I'm in the midst of my day. And what I saw was just those moments where, oh, you know, a bit of complacency, not turning up with a, you know, full-heartedness to meet this moment. Um, or the tendency to, oh, you know, here's a pleasant thought, and oh, I just want to revel in that for a moment. You know, it was, it was where there just wasn't this ardency in meeting and engaging in this moment with the totality of heart and mind with the support of awareness. You know, so, and, you know, I, uh, laziness is something that I commonly see in my own mind, um, and I think that, you know, it's not so uncommon. Uh, I remember reading Tenzin Palmo's book, um, Cave in the Snow, and her describing, you know, she spent 12 y- years in a cave practicing, and she talked about her laziness. You know, from the outside perspective, anyone spending 12 years in a cave, <laughs> in my mind's not suffering from laziness. And yet there are these moments where, we just don't meet the moment. You know, we choose something else. And, you know, have habits that are very strong that will just leave us um, in a place of apathy, as if this moment doesn't really matter. And so... Uh, well, I'll let you know what these thoughts are in case you've never heard of them. Uh, so you'll get a, a, the gist of what I'm talking about. Uh, so the first is to meditate on this precious human life with its freedoms and endowments. It's hard to obtain and easy to lose. Now I must make it meaningful. The second is everything is impermanent, the world and all it contains. Moreover, the life of beings is fragile as a water bubble. The time of death is uncertain, and at that time I'll be but a corpse. Only the Dharma can help me then, so I must practice with diligence. Third, when I die, I will have no freedom. Whatever I have done will come back to me. Therefore, I will always avoid harmful actions and continually engage in wholesome ones, thinking thus, every day I will examine my mind. And the fourth is the places, friends, comforts, and possessions in samsara constantly trouble us due to the three types of suffering. They are like a feast offered by my executioner on the way to the gallows. Cutting off all attachment, I will practice diligently to achieve enlightenment. Before going into each one, I want to say that what we're looking to arouse is the healthy sense of spiritual urgency. The, that is, you know, based in the recognition that life is fleeting, time of death is unknown. This moment is here now. It's precious. Let's use it. And that it's, um, there can be, you know, sometimes 
when we reflect on things like impermanence, it can bring up strong fear and you know, real insecurity, and we start grasping. And this is not the kind of spiritual urgency that we're looking at. If this happens, what we do is continue to practice, because then we will find the true spiritual urgency. But to know if you find that you're in a, a state of real fear, it, it can be that these reflections are actually working, but that's, you know, that's just um, because we don't have complete understanding that we're feeling that fear in a way. And if the fear is really overwhelming, we probably actually want to let go of doing the contemplation at that time. These contemplations can, you know, th- they need to be done skillfully. So, you know, if it's really perpetuating the anxiety, let it go. But if it's really helping to call forth this natural form of effort or energy, it's really helpful. So we'll have to look and see, you know, when's the right time to use these. You know, they're often used at the beginning of a day. You know, just so that we really align with our motivation as we begin a day of practice. You know, we remember why we're doing what we're doing. It can be done at the beginning of a sitting, any sitting. They can be done when we just recognize, wow, you know, I'm really not into this right now. And, you know, it happens. We hit times of resistance. That's, that's normal. That's natural. But, you know, we just don't want to hang out there. You know, we, we don't want to feed that. And, you know, so this is a way of kind of looking deeper at what's happening there. So the first of these reflections. Meditating on this precious human life with its freedoms and endowments. It's hard to obtain and easy to lose. Now I must make it meaningful. It's said to be not so easy to have a human birth. We might not know it, because it seems like all oh, we've known. <laughs> so, um, you know, we, 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 that, that's one way we take it for granted. You know, we have it. Our friends have a human birth. Uh, you know, all of these people have a human birth. And yet, there's so many forms of life that aren't human. And there is something about being a human being that is potent that really, as a human being, we do have this capacity to awaken. That, you know, we don't uh, have to just be living in the mode of survival and have no understanding of what's transpiring. That we can, because of the faculties we have as a human being, there is immense potential in this. And so, you know, to realize that the Buddha talked about there being, you know, many different realms of existence. This is the human realm is just one realm. You know, there is the hell realms. There is the hungry ghost realm. There is animal realms. 
And, you know, the suffering in those realms is said to be strong. And the potential for awakening, not there. And there's also said to be higher realms, you know, um, realms such as we can reach through doing Brahma-vihara practices. You know, the Brahma realms, Deva realms, where the mind is in a very pure and refined state, not fully awakened, but in very pleasant abiding. And it's said in those realms that, you know, if things are really, really good, the, the, the desire to awaken, you know, we just, it isn't stimulated because we don't know the suffering. But in the realm of a human being, we have both. We have the suffering and we have pleasure. And so that mix makes it ideal circumstances to awaken. And that, you know, it was, there's also um, numerous teachings about how rare it is to be born a human, where maybe this was mentioned recently, it's, it's, it's in my mind a bit, about the turtle coming to the uh, top of the ocean once every hundred years and putting its head through a yoke. You know, just the probability of that happening. And then there's a more modern-day version where it's like there's a plane flying overhead and a pea is dropped and that pea landing on the end of a pin. You know, and you know, just the probability of that happening, not so likely. And it said, you know, it takes, you know, it's that kind of probability we're looking at for having this precious human life. We can reflect, you know, I have obtained this extraordinary and precious human birth. There can come a real sense of gratitude, of possibility. Here we sit with the potential of this life. And, you know, if we understand the teachings of karma, This didn't happen by chance. It happened through causes and conditions. At some point, somewhere, doing wholesome acts, giving rise to these conditions of being a human being. But it goes on from there, the preciousness of this birth, the freedoms and endowments that we receive, that we've been born into a time where the teachings of the Buddha are here. We live in a time where there was a Buddha who realized the end of suffering and offered these teachings, and that we hear these teachings and can understand and put into practice, and that we have the opportunity for practice. No, we can think of all that it took 
to get here, to be here, to put in this time, this effort. What a rare opportunity it is. Just having returned from India and seeing so many beings that, like all of us, have this deep desire to be happy. And yet, so much of their lives is filled with basic survival. You know, they're just trying to make it from meal to meal, from day to day. The whole of their energy goes into what it takes to feed themselves. They can't, you know, I won't even say find shelter. Many of them don't have shelter. Maybe, maybe it is to find a shawl or something to give warmth. But, you know, just the basic level of survival. And here we are. And it's not that we need to feel guilty because we have this opportunity. Because if we utilize this time, this opportunity, the work that we do here can be of benefit to all beings everywhere. And so if we don't utilize it, that's where we waste it. But what we have here is something precious. Reflecting on this can bring forth a great courageousness of heart. You know, if you're being with the suffering that's happening here in your mind and body, but you're not doing it just for yourself. You're doing it in order to benefit others, to understand your own pain so you can help others to understand their pain. This reflection can be very empowering and really help to uplift the heart into a place of gratitude. So the first of these reflections, to reflect on this precious human birth. We can think of it, you know, we may not remember the whole sentence of what I, or the few sentences I used, but just to, you know, you can keep it very simple. Reflection on this precious human birth. The second reflection, everything is impermanent, the world and all it contains. Moreover, the life of beings is fragile as a water bubble. The time of death is uncertain, and at that time I'll be but a corpse. Only the Dharma can help me then, so I must practice with diligence. So this reflection is pointing towards 
the truth of impermanence. This is something the Buddha often spoke about. Um, I was just today reading a sutta where uh, he was telling a story about a Brahmin who had given very generously. And then he began a series of statements, which I'm not going to go through. It was quite lengthy, about how even though this was a great deed, it would be even greater. And each thing he did went through, it got even greater, even greater, you know, more valuable. So it was like even greater if... Um, He'd given to one person uh, if he, it would be greater if he fed a person who had right view or had reached stream entry. And then it would be even greater if he gave to a hundred people who had reached stream entry. And then to, he went through the different stages of enlightenment, um, both one and a hundred of each of them, and then on to a Pacheka Buddha. Uh, that's a solitary Buddha, someone who is realized but doesn't have the capacity to che- teach. And then you know, it would be even greater to feed uh, 100 Pacheka Buddhas. And then it would be greater to feed the Sangha of monks headed by the Buddha. And it would be even greater to build a monastery. And it would be even greater to go for refuge and undertake the precepts. And it would be even greater to develop a mind of loving-kindness. And then he said, as great as all this might be, it would be even more fruitful still if one would develop the perception of impermanence just for the time it takes to snap one's finger. That's how powerful this truth of impermanence is and the seeing of it, the understanding of it. It's called a gateway to liberation. It really is what helps to uh, uproot the tendency to grasp, to cling. And a difficulty with the truth of impermanence is that we so often think that we know it. You know, that we, we, you know, we see a lot of change. Sitting here, we see, know a lot of change. And um, in, and in some ways, you know, we, we, we kind of dull out to it because we think we know, but then we find we get hooked. We find, you know, if, if we pay attention, we really begin to see the places we're uncomfortable, the places we don't like it the places it brings up fear. We begin to see that we don't actually live our lives from the depths of understanding the truth of impermanence. So this reflection Life is impermanent. Everything in it, all conditioned things are impermanent. Now this very ground we're sitting on, this body, you see it changing. 
the breath, the thoughts, the ideas, the people in our lives, the events. This is all arising and passing. And sometimes the length of one's life is related to like a blink of an eye. Now before we know it, this life will be finished, gone as we know it. And with that, even the time of death is uncertain. Often we imagine that we'll know when death is approaching. In the best case scenario, we'll be surrounded by our loved ones. We'll have a sense of completeness in our lives. And yet, if we look to the people we know, we know it doesn't always happen that way. We know it can be very sudden, unexpected. I had a friend. One day she went out to do yoga on the lawn and her husband got on his bicycle and went off for a bike ride. It was something they did very regularly, just like any other morning. But when her husband came back, he found her dead on the lawn. It can happen to any of us. We never know when it's going to be our last day. We never know when it's going to be our last breath. Some of us may die with really painful circumstances. The only thing that will protect us then is our practice, is a steadiness of mind and heart that is not thrown, not fearful, but willing to meet death too, willing to meet discomfort, a change. A mind that knows what direction to look so that one is not overcome by fear. Actually, just this week I had an experience around fear that, you know, it was... uh, I'll tell you the story and then we'll see what comment I make on it. (laughs) Um, A year ago, I had an MRI of my knee done. And it turned into a very humbling experience. 
because I, I, you know, was being put into the machine, laying on my back, and I also have lower back problems. So, so it was kind of painful to be laying in that position. And um, so, you know, I go into the machine, and I don't know if you've had an MRI, but if you have, you know, the technicians in another room and speaking to you through this little speaker. And so as I'm laying there, and my body's getting tighter and tighter in the position that it's in, and my leg starts to shake. And this is not a good thing for an MRI. And so the technician starts saying, please be still, keep still. And so the more he says to stay still, the more I get locked into a position which exacerbates the shaking. And then, you know, I started becoming overcome by fear that I just couldn't do this. You know, that, that <laughs> here, you know, after over 30 years of practice, the MRI was going to get the better of me. <laughs> I was going to drown in my fear. You know, it was really the fear of being overwhelmed by something. And it was, it was just a torturous time. I tried every trick I knew to be with the fear. And I just have to say, I was completely humbled at the end of it. We did manage to do it, but you know, it was in no um, gracious form. So anyhow, just earlier this week, I was having a repeat MRI done. And I hadn't thought about it, but then suddenly I'm going, I, th- I remember what happened last time. I was like, oh my God, you know, I'm going to do this again. And so, you know, when I laid down, placing the body as carefully as I can, trying to get comfortable, um, and then, you know, get put in the machine, and then I could just feel the body starting to tighten. And I just knew that was not a good thing. And then I could see as the body started to tighten, the thoughts it's going to happen again. I can't do this. You know, and, and you know, the, the fear of being overwhelmed once again. But this time, it was different. You know, it was just seeing, that's a thought. I can relax. Uh, you know, turning the mind where it could find more calm, where there was a sense of ease, peace. And, and it was still in many ways, quite a strong experience. It wasn't like I just clicked into you know, a place of ease. It wasn't the sense of really seeing fear in its nature. But it was a sense of knowing how to protect the mind, that it didn't have to be overwhelmed by this fear. And, you know, always, as with fear, it's kind of interesting, you know, what's the worst that's going to happen? I'm going to press a button and they're going to pull me out. (laughs) It's never rational. But uh, it's kind of interesting to have these experiences. And, you know, it just, again, reinforces in me the necessity to face the inner terrain that is uncomfortable in the face of these truths. And that we don't have to stay locked into this discomfort. That we can look towards that which is beyond birth and death. That which is beyond arising and passing. That which is of true refuge. And that's what happens when we turn the mind in the direction of the Dhamma.
And this is what will help us. The practice that we're doing here, you know, it's really in line with this reflection on impermanence because we see it moment by moment in our experience. And you just let that really be felt, be known. We don't have to do anything to make it be so. It just is the nature of experience. We just need to recognize it. And with that, you know, as a reflection, it's also seeing all of our reactions where we aren't comfortable, aren't okay. We probably all know, too, how in moments where this truth of impermanence is known, how it does bring about huge energy. You know, if we've ever had a close encounter with death or where our life is deeply touched by the loss of a loved one, in some, you know, some way that really rips the illusion of permanence. And, you know, it's a time when we often find that we realign our lives with what is of value, what is meaningful, what is ultimately helpful for both ourselves and others. Another aspect of this reflection that's really helpful is, you know, if we just look at our tendency to accumulate, to have, to get, and then reflect on how at death we can take none of this with us. It can help to illuminate the uselessness of much of this acquiring. That it consumes so much of our energy and yet is not of true value. So the third reflection When I die, I will have no freedom. Whatever I have done will come back to me. Therefore, I will always avoid harmful actions and continually engage in wholesome ones. Thinking thus, every day I will examine my mind. What this reflection is pointing to is the understanding of karma the understanding of cause and effect, that we are agents in this journey of awakening, that we can, through what we do, what we say, what we turn our mind towards, lay the ground for the realization of the awakened heart-mind that we can plant seeds in our life that will blossom 
into happiness, into that which is wholesome, that which is helpful, that which brings harmony. We find that in our lives we can plant seeds that are helpful, that lead to the alleviation of suffering, and we can also be planting seeds that are unhelpful, that are just going to lead to more suffering in the future. It's helpful to know about karma that it isn't just the action itself that decides whether it will lead to something wholesome or unwholesome in the future. It's really based in the motivation, what's behind perpetuating the action. You know, if it was that, you know, just a, a, a wholesome action was, you know, a good action and didn't depend on motivation, um, then, you know, we could uh, give for really. Uh, you know, to perpetuate ourselves. You know, we could give to, to just get a bolster our self-image or um, give to get something back. But that isn't really wholesome action. Wholesome action is when, you know, we genuinely care. You know, so it's like in the heart there's a moment of caring. And out of that, this wholesome action transpires. And that will plant seeds for that wholesome for wholesome results to arise in the future. And so, you know, what this reflection is calling us to do is to look and see what's motivating what we do in our lives, what we say, what we give our attention to. Is this really what is going to plant the seeds for happiness, for joy, for contentment? Or is this just going to lead to further suffering? And it's helpful, you know, at the end of our day to reflect, to look back and to see. You know, if we've done wholesome actions, to call them to mind. Because, you know, this gladdens the mind. It helps us to remember that we're not stupid all the time, (laughs) that there is moments when wisdom prevails, and that that has an effect. We can also reflect on the times when we did something that was unskillful. And in doing so, you know, we just touch the pain of that. And then, you know, it's not that that we go into guilt, that's lacerating, but that helps us to see, oh, there's an effect. Do we want to perpetuate that? No. And we just recommit to living a life of non-harming. It will happen in our lives that we have moments where we bear the fruits of unwholesome actions in the past, where anger ripens, hostility, 
And, you know, this is a time where we can make a difference. You know, where, you know, <laughs> we can respond with mindfulness. We can respond with non-reactivity. We can respond with kindness rather than perpetuating the cycle. You know, so like if you stub your toe, you don't kick it again. (laughs) Be with the pain. If somebody's angry, blaming you, not retaliating with anger, but being present, bearing witness to their suffering, their pain, looking inside. Is there something they're saying that there's truth in? that we need to take note of. We respond with wisdom. To me, the law of karma has, over the years, really given me a sense of empowerment, of not needing to be a victim when one finds oneself in really adverse conditions, that that is still a place we can work. No, in these times when it's difficult, when there is challenges, to meet it with mindfulness, with awareness, and to call forth all the goodness in our hearts. The literal translation of karma is the right view of the ownership of action. Really understanding that what we do, what we say, what we turn our minds towards has an effect. And in our practice, we really get to see this. On one level, if we've done unwholesome actions in the past, As we come to practice, we find the mind won't concentrate, doesn't stay present, gets caught in regret, guilt, or even just in a moment of anger. And we feed that anger. We can feel the pain of identifying with that anger. Or in a moment of loving kindness, we can feel the effect of a mind filled with loving-kindness or compassion. When patience is strong, we feel the effect of that, the grace of patience. When perseverance is present, we feel the steadfastness of it. So this reflection helps to guide us towards taking care in our lives. It is important. Everything we do, we say. Where we let our minds dwell, 
sometimes we can look at a person and when habits are deeply embedded, we might see where their mind is dwelling. You know, someone at their end of their life who has really been filled with a lot of anger, rage. It might show. doesn't mean that it can't be changed. You know, that one might uh, discover that that's not a great place of abiding. But sometimes, you know, it's just so evident where the mind has been dwelling because it has an effect. There's a sutra from the... uh, It's out of the Jataka tales, and it relates to karma. Do not take lightly small misdeeds, believing they can do no harm. Even a tiny spark of fire can set alight a mountain of hay. Even the smallest acts can bring great benefit. You know, we see this in the world where a person does a kind act and people take notice and might inspire many others to do the same. So don't underestimate moments of kindness, acts of kindness, wholesome moments in the mind. A moment of mindfulness that plants seeds for moments of mindfulness in the future. So this reflection really helps us to look towards the planting of that which will be wholesome and helpful. So the last of the reflections, the places, friends, comforts, and possessions in samsara constantly trouble us due to the three types of suffering. They are like a feast offered by my executioner on the way to the gallows. Cutting off all attachment, I will practice diligently to achieve enlightenment. This contemplation is commonly spoken of as contemplating the defects of samsara or this cyclic existence which uh, is perpetuated through ignorance, not seeing clearly. I think in many ways we have some understanding of this or we wouldn't be doing this practice. That... You know, we see in our lives that, you know, getting all of the things we truly want, desire, doesn't bring us the promised happiness. We, many of us um, may have tasted to some degree of, you know, really pulling life together in a certain way that, you know, we dreamt of. And then just wow, realizing this isn't it. I had this when I was young. You know, my whole dream as I was, you know, in high school, junior high school, I wanted to go out and live in nature and build a cabin and live in the woods. And I had the opportunity to do that. I didn't own the cabin, but never mind. I built the cabin. And then I remember sitting on the porch. It was a very poignant moment. And I realized that 
No, it didn't bring me what I thought it would. And I also realized then that I didn't know how to find that happiness, just staying there, doing what I was doing. And it just, you know, right there, the direction of my life radically shifted. We here on retreat can investigate this in our own experience. Um, When the Buddha talked about uh, renunciation, he talked about, you know, and this is the letting go, the attachment to this, he talked about one way of understanding was to explore the drawbacks of sense pleasure. And, you know, we can see this during the course of a day of practice. Whether it's, uh, you know, having had very pleasant experiences and then getting caught in the agony of trying to recreate that once it's gone. I mean, I bet there's not a person here that doesn't know of that one. You know, that it's, it's excruciating. And we could do it for years. <laughs> or, you know, the food at lunchtime. It's incredible here. And, you know, if we've been at home cooking for ourselves, maybe not a great cook, and I'm speaking for myself, and then come and see this beautiful meal laid out, uh, you know, and the, 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 the delight that comes from it. And then, you know, sitting on retreat after lunch, what do we do after a big meal? You know, feel the sleepiness that sets in, that, you know, the, the pain in the belly if we've overeaten. You know, we just see. And then, you know, another great place is, you know, one day it's your favorite food. And, you know, you take a mouthful. How long does the satisfaction last? How long before you're going for the next mouthful? You know, we just see that anything that we're grasping at through the realm of experience is so fleeting. And then, you know, how much in our lives we put energy into that, the fulfilling of these desires. seeing it. You know, this is useful information. You know, it doesn't mean that we don't experience happier, you know, a kind of joy uh, with sense pleasure, a delight. It's there, but, you know, we don't chase it. We don't go after it. It's not the direction of our lives. We really want to turn our minds in the direction of the Dhamma, the nature of things. To discover for ourselves true peace, true happiness.
So all of these reflections to help us to see what is meaningful in our lives. What is the potential of our lives? To get in touch with our motivation as we practice. To use this opportunity, this moment, not waiting for the next moment, which is uncertain. Remembering that these reflections are used as a skillful means to use them in times of complacency, times we're not sure why we're doing what we're doing. But they are something that can help us to realign our lives with this deep wish to be happy, to be of benefit, to be useful, helpful in this world. To live a life that is meaningful. and to be at peace. So let's just sit for a moment. May all of the wholesome energy of our practice be dedicated to the welfare, peace, and liberation of all beings everywhere. So closing with the chanting of the reflections on the sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.